Well, hello once again, everybody, and welcome to After Further Review with Mark Ferrer and John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor, our producer on the board, as always. I am John Pelkey. A good show for you today, I hope. Since this all rests on my shoulders, if it crashes and burns, Mark can take no responsibility for that, or I can't blame him. I think that would be more uh, right, the, the correct thing to say. Uh, we're going to talk a little about the, uh, the two NFL teams that saved professional football during the Second World War. Uh, before we jump into that, uh, Mark, hello. Yes. Hello. Anything uh, Anything you want to jump on top of as far as sports stories other than this amazing story, which very few people know about? No, I'm ready for the deep dive. I think we can maybe do a little potpourri if indeed uh, at the end of this deep dive we have a few minutes left over. I put a lot that- of pressure on myself for that. You've set the bar on that. Multiple shows you've promoted that it's going to be, you know, roughly 45 minutes long. Right. And normally when I write one of these up, mine have been somewhere between 16 and 19 pages. And so I committed to doing a shorter one and I wrote notes that total 20 pages. So I don't know if that means I'm going to cut you off anytime you try to speak. Um, Yeah. How would that that be different? No, that would be how you would blame me for a less than successful show about a topic well, really, no one knows anything about. Yeah, very few people know anything about it. But uh, it is uh, it is an interesting and fun topic. Before I jump in, I do want to. I've, I I didn't do this in my last deep dive uh, because uh, you know uh, when I do one of these, as you do, Mark, we get a couple of different source materials. Usually, try to get uh, a couple of books involved. Also, like to get uh, Joe Conley saying, "Take the over." Probably true, Joe. Me too. Um, uh, and and then online sources. But I do want to point out that uh, an invaluable source for me uh, was uh, Matthew Alego's Last Team Standing, How the Steelers and Eagles Saved Pro Football During World War II. It is a great read. I have just scratched the surface of it. So please, if you want some fun fall football reading as the NFL season starts tomorrow night. But let's find out how two teams made that happen. Quite possibly, if it were not for these two teams, this would not have happened. This is the story of the Steagles. By the spring of 1943, Mark, the uh, the country had been at war for over two years. The NFL at this point was only 23 years old. And in fact, the two teams we're talking about did not come into the NFL until 1933. So they were only a decade old at this point. And between the two of them, they'd only had one winning season in those 20 combined season. That was the Steelers' 7-4 and four record in 1942. Um, the league also ran into a problem, which they have not had since, which is at this point, because of the draft, there were too few players to play in the National Football League. Let that sink in for a minute. They wow. did not have enough players in a 10-team league. Yeah. Just well, crazy. I, I, it must have been a crazy time. You know, you, you, you get attacked. This is Pearl Harbor at the end of 41. By the summer of 42, people are still scrambling. Baseball's still scrambling. A lot, a lot of the players that will be drafted have not been drafted yet. Right. Same probably goes for the fall of 42 for, for, the, for the NFL. So by, by the time 43 comes around, it's full-fledged. We are fully engaged we are planning our Europe invasion. We are fully engaged in the in the South Pacific, and more and more men are needed. 
Yep, absolutely. And uh, there had been a little bit of planning ahead for this, uh, much to the uh, chagrin of actually the majority of people in the United States. The third, pe- the third draft in U.S. history and the very first peacetime draft in U.S. history came about on uh, October 29th, 1940. There's Secretary of War Henry Stimson. He pulled uh, one capsule out of 9,000 from a jar, pulled out the number 158, and the draft was off. So all men who had draft numbers of 158 were inducted. Um, their two previous drafts had been during war, Mark, during the Civil War, but that was different because um, the shared sacrifice wasn't quite as great for the Union. If you were rich, you could buy your way out. You could either send a second in your place or just simply pay your way out of it. No burns, bone spurs necessary. Uh, there was also a draft during the First World War uh, that went on for, uh, but as soon as the armistice happened, that draft went away. So this was the first real peacetime draft in American history. Uh, and by the America had no choice. We only had 188,000 soldiers in the military at the start of the Second World War. We were we had a smaller army in Poland, among others. Uh, so we needed all as many men as possible. And those men were between the ages of 21 and 35. And boy, does that affect sports? There's your your sweet spot right there. Well, uh, it's interesting. My grandfather in 1941 was 32. And he had a child and he had a full time job and he never got never got drafted. Well, interestingly enough, fathers were exempt from the draft until 1943. And that ends up being part of the problem as we move forward. Also, should point out that all the draft boards were local draft boards and the um, their rulings were uh, not based on really national standards. And uh, what I mean by that was you could be considered an essential worker in Wisconsin if you worked in the cheese industry, because that was one of their main money-making industries. Uh, but to be a bus driver in Minneapolis, St. Paul was, was not as big a deal or a streetcar driver in New York City, in Brooklyn, it's opposite. Cheesemakers not going to do very well in New York, but the bus drivers did. So sports were also because people had jobs in addition to playing sports, many, and particularly in the National Football League, uh, they didn't really know how many people that they were going to lose. Now, Franklin Roosevelt had uh, had stated that baseball would be necessary during the war. People were going to be working harder. They were going to be working more hours and their leisure time was going to be important. It was also going to put money back into the economy. So as always, Mark, follow the money. Uh, the NFL uh, decided to take up the mantle as well with baseball and uh, approach it as if their sport was something that was necessary, though it wasn't actually mentioned. So in the spring of 1943, the NFL got together. Uh, they found themselves in a lot of trouble. In 1941, each team had less lost less than five players per team. That was the average. But by May of 1942, 112 of the 346 players in the NFL had already been drafted, and they weren't ramping it up. Uh, and they were ramping up how many people they were drafting after that. To give you an idea, uh, under contract for the 43 season at that spring, the Eagles had 16 players, Cleveland and Green Bay 14, New York Giants 13, Detroit 12, the Chicago Cardinals 10, Pittsburgh 6. Now, this was in a time when um, the maximum number of players on a team were 33, and the minimum number of players were uh, was, I believe, 20 or 22 
um, because guys were 60-minute players at that point in time. And I'm going to click on this real quick so that sound of my mail coming in doesn't stay. Um, so they met in the uh, in the Palmer House Hotel in Chicago. I only mentioned the Palmer House Hotel in Chicago, one of the great hotels in Chicago, because sadly, yesterday they announced that due to the coronavirus, they would be shutting their doors, the Palmer House uh, Hotel in Chicago. So uh, as I mentioned, the team's decided they were going to try to continue with the season. But once they got to the meeting, they realized their manpower problem was enormous. So they voted on what they should do. There were 10 teams in the NFL. Four teams voted to suspend for the duration of the war. Um, uh, Four more of the teams were somewhere in the middle, shut down for a year, limit uh, the number of games. Uh, The two most powerful guys... In the National Football League, though, uh, owner-wise, were George Hallis of the Chicago Bears and George Preston Marshall of the Washington Redskins. And uh, no surprise that uh, Hallis and, uh, and there's our, our good friend Elmer Layden, the uh, the commissioner of the National Football League, who called the uh, who called the meeting. Uh, no surprise that uh, Hallis and Preston Marshall wanted their teams to continue. They were the most successful teams in the National Football League. Washington had won the championship in 1942, so they did not want to shut down. Neither did our man Elmer Layden. Uh, Now, uh, it was not all altruism with Elmer Layden. In 1943, Elmer Layden was making $25,000 a year. That was 10 times the average salary of somebody. So uh, he clearly wanted the league to continue. Uh, One team, though, was allowed to opt out, and that was the Cleveland Rams. And one of the reasons why was because not only did they uh, have uh, a a pretty good drain on players, at this point they had 14 under contract. That was about to change. They were going to lose more guys. Um, But also their owners were all. They were owned by two guys. They were both in the military as well, and it was uh, operations were much smaller back in the 1940s. So having your two owners – off-site was just too difficult for Cleveland. Not a particularly uh, uh, successful team up to that point. Uh, uh, Chicago also had George Hallis, their owner. He was in the Navy as well, but uh, Hallis had a little bit more pull. He could uh, get a little more time off to help run his team, but the Cleveland Rams were allowed to sit out the 1943 season. They were only given that dispensation for the 43 season. They were going to have to each year come back to the league and uh, and argue why they should be able to suspend their operations. But the problem they have now in the NFL is there's nine teams and scheduling becomes a problem. They made a couple of rule changes to try to help. As mentioned, they dropped the maximum number of players on a team from 33 to 25. They did away with the minimum number of teams. This was a positive on a lot of, uh, for a lot of reasons, people not realizing what the shared sacrifice was in the, fir- in the Second World War. There was an uh, Office of Defense Transportation that limited the amount of miles that people could travel at any point in time. And this actually dropped by, by taking, uh, by dropping the number of people on their rosters. It actually dropped the man miles that the NFL would have to travel by 37%. So that uh, that was a seen as a positive towards the uh, war effort. Most importantly, the the um, the rule change they made in 1943 was they would allow unlimited substitutions. Now, this is huge and will have huge implications moving forward. Prior to I had no idea about this. 
And I consider myself a football fan and an old school football fan. I grew up around the legend of Sammy Baugh and Sid Luckman and Tom Fears and guys like that. Prior to this uh, vote in 1943, players could only enter once per quarter. So if a player entered in the third quarter and then was substituted for, he could not come back in until the fourth quarter. In the fourth quarter, you could do it twice, but there was a limiting of substitutions. Again, remember, guys were playing both ways back then. There wasn't a lot of substitutions other than for injuries. A couple of other changes that they made. Uh, By the way, uh, head coaches hated the unlimited substitution thing. You would think it was otherwise. It's counterintuitive, but they were so used to coaching the game um, with 60-minute players. This actually... uh, led to the expanding of coaching uh, of, of number of coaches on a team because you had a lot more you had to deal with now with substitutions. Um, this 43 season is very consequential to how football was played following. Uh, they also made helmets mandatory for the very first time. That's right. Wow. Prior to 1943, you didn't have to wear a helmet. Um, they were going to wear the leather helmets for the 1943 season. Um, and if you're watching, you can see a couple of leather helmets, the great Rams leather helmet and uh, the brown leather helmet, which most teams tried to paint uh, by this time. And they looked pretty poor, as you can tell. Now, the Rydell Company, shout out to our good friend Keith Abbott, who worked for the Rydell Company. They had patented a new plastic helmet in 1939. Uh, there is a, a Washington football team and an Eagles helmet, if you're watching. Um, but plastics was one of the things that was rationed during the war and, uh, subsequently leather helmets, but everyone has to wear them. And a number of guys who played in 43 were not used to wearing helmets and many of them complained. Um, one thing there was a, a manpower, uh, there was a solution to their manpower problem, Mark, if they'd have just looked more closely and if they'd been a little more courageous, (laughs) There would have been players. Gee, Mark, I wonder what what that was. Any any guesses? Well, I think uh, what's his name, George Preston Marshall, Razor. may may have an an answer to that. That's right. Uh, uh, George Preston Marshall. You know, in case anyone had an inkling of perhaps going into a, another vast population of Americans to get more players, if anyone had an inkling for that, I think this guy. Probably shut it down right away, John. I tell you, Preston Marshall is an interesting guy across the board. I've known about him, you know, since I was a kid because he did bring um, uh, the Washington football team from Boston to Washington. And uh, he was very innovative in a lot of different ways. Sadly, he was a terribly, terribly vitriolic racist. Um, His team was also highly marketed in the South. It was the team that was the furthest South. And he had a uh, he had radio stations and then even early television stations as we move into the 50s throughout the South, all the way into Texas Um, before the song hailed to the Redskins, which will now be retired. Clearly was the Redskins uh, song. Um, Dixie was the song that was played um, as a as a fight song for Washington. But uh, he had 10 years earlier. basically barred uh, black players from the NFL. There had been black players, Fritz Pollard among them, uh, who there's an award named after and now one of the great um, early African-American pioneers in football. Um, but as, as per George Preston Marshall went, and a number of the other owners too, we can't just pile on him too much. Thoughts about race in the 1940s were, uh, were pretty behind the times. Um, th- 
it should also point or they were sort of of the time of the time well yeah sure of the time. i mean the the army wasn't even integrated yes it's a good point by the time and in fact uh, the army air corps at this point was still not accepting uh african americans um they also had a draft during this uh this uh get together in the palmer house hotel the draft had only been in, in, instituted since 1936 um i should point out that of the players drafted in 1943 and you brought this up mark about guys drafted into the nfl only five percent ended up playing for their teams so uh why they even had a draft one will never know now Prior to the spring of 43, just before these meetings, um, Art Rooney, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, um, was approached by Harry Thayer. There's the great Art Rooney, who uh, most people were first aware of in 1974, uh, near 31 years later when his team became relevant for the second time in NFL history. Um, he was approached by Harry Thayer, who was the GM of the Philadelphia Eagles, to talk about possibly merging the Philadelphia and the Pittsburgh team. Now, P Pittsburgh, again, coming off their first winning season, they were 7-4 and four in uh, 1942, and they were in danger of folding. And Rooney really, really was... Um, he, he was not in favor of folding. He wanted to do anything he could to keep the, the Steelers up and playing. Um, he was approached by uh, Harry Thayer, the Eagles owner, a guy by the name of Alexis Thompson, who was uh, an omnipresent gadfly, uh, to throw back to an old phrase that we used to use, Mark. He was a, a rich, rich bon vivant who, at one point, we're going to jump back on this timetable, at one point he had owned the Steelers because he had bought the, the Pittsburgh Steelers from Art Rooney. And he, oh, with wow. the purpose of moving the Steelers to Boston, he worked uh, in New York, lived and worked in New York, and he wanted the team to be closer. New York didn't need another team at that point in time, wanted to be closer to the team. So he bought them with the purpose of moving them to Boston. Art Rooney then bought a piece of the Philadelphia Eagles, along with Eagles owner Burt Bell, who would become the commissioner of the National Football League, and had the perfect timing, the most perfect timing of an exit from this earth of any human being ever. We'll touch on that in a little bit later. But um, Thompson bought the Steelers. Art Rooney went uh, to be a uh, part owner of the Eagles. The next season, however, because uh, George Preston Marshall again, who, oh man, I tell you what, what a block. And insert the word before block, because he blocked anybody from doing anything that would make them uh, more successful than he was. He would not allow a team to move to Boston. He had moved um, the Washington football team out of Boston because of the lack of support. And he just simply felt that the ball, he had a beef with the city of Boston and he didn't feel they deserved a team. So because of this, Art Rooney, and Burt Bell went to Alexis Thompson and said, why don't we just uh, switch franchises? Art can go back to Pittsburgh where he lived. Burt Bell will, you know, help take over the Pittsburgh franchise, though still living in Philly. You'll be in Philly, which is much closer to New York City. So that's how Alexis Thompson ended up as the owner of the Eagles. He wasn't sure about this whether he wanted to merge or not, because he was trying to, he knew a lot about marketing and he really wanted to market his team as the Eagles. And he felt that a merger would, uh, would set him back from being able to do that. He did agree to make the merge if they were called the Eagles and they played all of their home games in Philadelphia. So on June 16th, 1943, they applied to the league for this. Um, by this time, the situation had worsened. 
The draft had now lowered the age to 18. So prior to this, the NFL could take guys who had dropped out of college, who had played a little bit of college football, or just great high school players and played them. But now the draft age is 18. They're also lessen, uh, lessening the um, the specifications for a draft uh, somebody who was drafted you people in the beginning had to have a minute. We talked about this, uh, uh, one of our other shows, they had to have like 12 rows of matching teeth. Uh, they had to be, they couldn't be illiterate. There were a number of things that started to go out of the board when they realized that this was going to be a long war and they needed a lot of manpower. More importantly, they instituted the father draft. In 1943, for the first time, fathers could be drafted. It should be pointed out that the 1942 championship game between Washington and Chicago, those were the two teams with the most fathers on the roster. Subsequently, they had the most regular players on their roster. So that was um, now 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 you're starting to mess with George Preston Marshall and George Hallis's money. And that that changes things. Uh, should also be pointed out that at the same time this is going on, the owner of the uh, Chicago Cardinals, Charlie Bidwell, who the Bidwell family still owns the Cardinals now that they're in Arizona, chasing some home that will allow them to be a seven and nine team for the duration of the life of the National Football League. Um, he approached George Hallis and offered up a merger of the Cardinals and the Bears. Now, this makes a great deal of sense. They're a 30 minute ride from each other in Chicago. Um, here's where the opposition came into play for this. I mentioned that Pittsburgh and Philadelphia were bad teams. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Pittsburgh had been seven and four, as mentioned the year before, but that was the exception that proved the rules. Uh, in 1942, the Bears were undefeated. They were 11 and 0. They only lost the championship game. Uh, the Cardinals were only three and eight, but owners looked at that and said, why would we strengthen the Chicago Bears, which is essentially what they assumed they would be doing. So they voted against the, uh, well, actually what they did was they went to both Bidwell and Hallis and said, There's, we, we, we can't do this. So they withdrew their, uh, their application and uh, the motion did pass on a five to four vote. John Mara, the owner of the New York Giants, whose family still owns the New York Giants, was the de deciding vote. Here's the interesting thing about it. The merger was only approved up until the week before the championship game. There was so little faith that this team could challenge that in theory, what could have happened was they could have won their division. And as we move into this, we'll find out that they were a little better than people thought they would be. Uh, but that team could have been disbanded in the end of the divisional playoff and the, the championship game. Now, We've passed the ordinance or passed the, the, um, the motion. We're going to merge the Eagles and the Steelers. So I'm, here I'm, I'm confused. I'm sorry. I'm confused. Why are you confused? Because you said that they didn't approve this until right before the championship game. No, that's not what I said. What I said was they approved the merger until the week before the championship game, meaning that the merge of the two teams was approved by the league but would disband at the end of the regular season. So I they see. only approved the move. So I'm sorry if that was uh, was difficult. Uh, I, I apologize in every way. I, I don't think you should. Uh, Je Jeff looked like he was perfect, perfectly understood it. So I'm, yeah. I, it's, it's on me. It's all on me. Not not a big deal. It's just weird because they, again, had now I'm sure they would have come to an agreement had the team actually played for the championship. But in theory, that team could have been broken up 
immediately following the regular season because that was the plan. Everybody thought that they were going to suck. Let's be honest. I mean, they were two bad teams getting together. So I think the best anybody hoped was they could be a mediocre team. Um, a couple of things uh, that uh, that they agreed upon. The team would be known as the Eagles officially. Now, in the um, in the official NFL records, they're known as Phil Pitt. That, that is how, if you look them up, they'll known as Phil Pitt. But they were officially referred to as the Eagles. However, they did decide that they would split up the home games between Forbes Field in Pittsburgh and Shibe Park in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, they would also be based in Philadelphia for training. And they decided that the best way to deal with everything was to have two head coaches. They would take the head coaches of both teams. For Philadelphia, that's Earl Greasy Neal, one of the all-time greats, and Walt Kiesling, also a Hall of Famer. Um, this was not a match made in heaven because these guys could not have been any any more different. Um, Greasy Neal was born in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Uh, the one thing that he and uh, Kiesling had in uh, common was that their first love was actually baseball. And I think, again, if we go back to the 1940s and before, baseball was m the sport of record, the team sport of record in this country. Sure, Every sure. kid growing up wanted to be a baseball player. Now, I think you could argue that the, the majority of kids growing up in this country who play football would love to be a quarterback on an NFL team. I mean, that's that's the glamour position and that's kind of the bell cow of team sport athlete. That was not the case in the 1940s. First of all, the quarterback was not as important a player on a lot of teams, though on the Steagles, they would be very, very important. Uh, Earl Greasy Neal played football at West Virginia Wesleyan while he also pursued his baseball career. Um, he was a pretty good baseball player. Eight years in the major leagues, 688 hits, 200 RBI, had a 259 average. He actually won a World Series in 1919 with the Cincinnati Reds that beat the Black Sox. Um, to his dying day, Greasy Neal said, I don't care if they threw, we would have beaten them straight up anyway in the nine-game series. He had 357 in that series, as mentioned. Um, before we move on to Walt Kiesling, I will point out that uh, if, if you don't, if you're like me and overachievers just annoy you to no end, uh, you're not going to like Greasy Neal. In 1917, he played for the Reds, the Canton Bulldogs, coached by Jim Thorpe, by the way, and he coached the West Virginia Wesleyan football team all in that same year. Come on. That's like in, in, in the middle of a depression, you're taking up three jobs. I mean, shouldn't that have been illegal, Mark? If you had been president during the depression, wouldn't you have said one job for everybody? Nobody gets two jobs. Just doesn't do right. Well, you know, you don't you don't want to limit inherent American entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurialism. Oh, uh, you've changed. You, Moving on. You, you, you don't want to. You don't want to limit that, John, because you know there's plenty of people who didn't have any jobs, That's couldn't good. get any jobs. All right. Well, but they could have gotten. Maybe they could have coached West Virginia Wesleyan. Wasn't Probably there some not. poor guy huddled around a trash can in a train yard that years later Jimmy Webb would write a song about? Who maybe could have coached that West Virginia Wesleyan? Maybe he would have made uh, a name of himself. But no, no. No, no, no. Greasy Neal is like, uh, baseball, pro football. I'm, I got a lot of free time. I, got, I think like, a lot of people were like the Jodes. 
First of all, there's no way they could do it. Second of all, they were headed the other in the other direction. All right. In 1934, uh, Greasy Neal got his first head coaching job. He was head coach at Yale. Here is an interesting thing about that. He was not a Yale man. And Yale had never had a head coach that was not a Yale man. So he could not be considered the head coach. So they had to bring in a guy named Ducky Pond to act as the head coach of the team when Earl Neal was really the uh, the head of the uh, was the head coach of the football team. Um, he was also uh, one of the very, very early proponents of the T formation. Now, Alexis Thompson who we'd mentioned earlier, the owner of formerly the Steelers, now the Eagles, uh, was a Yale man. And he offered uh, Neil the head coaching job of the Eagles in 1940. His counterpart, Walt Kiesling, was from St. Paul, Minnesota. Baseball was his first love. He played minor league baseball. He got to the equivalent of AAA, but couldn't hit the curveball. So he was gone. A great lineman in his own right. Uh, He was offered a scholarship to play at Notre Dame, turned it down. Um, because his mother wanted him to stay closer at home, closer to home. So he played at St. Thomas. He also went on to play for the Duluth Eskimos of uh, the early National Football League. I bring them up simply because they were owned by a guy named Ole Hagsrud, who uh, eventually gave up Sounds the like team. like a character from Harry Potter. I don't Yeah, yeah it does. Ole Hagsrud. And I'm not really good with my Norwegian accents or pronunciations, so if I've said that incorrectly, I apologize to everyone involved. Um, he, uh, I mentioned him because eventually he lost the franchise. Uh, he bought the franchise for a dollar, by the way, um, probably in a poker game. He, he ended up losing the franchise. It went defunct, but it, it's okay because in 1961, he became one of the principal owners of the Minnesota Vikings, uh, for almost 50 years after having owned the Duluth Eskimos. Wow. Um, uh, by 1939, Walt Kiesling had uh, moved up the ranks in coaching. He had done the coaching thing like everybody else, and he was head coach of the Steelers. He was fired after the 1940 season, and he was pr- replaced by a guy named Buff Danelli, who simultaneously, while coaching the Pittsburgh Steelers, was coaching Duquesne University at the same time. He was the head coach of both teams, and they did not practice together, which I thought he was missing a really, really great opportunity to practice together. The the um, It's the football coach equivalent of Gene Deckerhoff. Yes. Yes, it is. Although, you know, Gene Deckerhoff's Saturdays are in Tallahassee. Sundays are in Tampa Bay. They're not in the same – they're not right. in Pittsburgh. Right. He was right there. Duquesne is right there. But it's right. it's remarkable. And again, I think it speaks to um, the position the NFL sat on the right. the table that the hierarchy uh, was way low. Right. Because uh, they eventually told Donnelly that he had to make a choice between Duquesne and the NFL. And he went with Duquesne, actually. And Walt Kiesling came back to coach the Steelers and was still there in 1943. All right. So now we have the Steagles. Together, uh, we'll talk a little about the players in a minute because finding players was going to be a little bit of a problem. But they did have their first practice as they're still trying to gain players in on in July of 1943. Now it would be, it is a bit of a stretch to call it a Steagles practice because Pittsburgh players were not required to attend. Uh, Walt Keesling, the Pittsburgh head coach, was back at home in Minnesota because he had another business and would not be able to attend. So it was really just Greasy Neal and the Eagles that he had. They were still trying to add players. And to give you an idea of how um, 
uh, catch as catch can that was, there's a guy by the name of Tom Miller, who was a uh, naval aviator, had played college football and played a little pro football. He had been in an aviation accident and suffered a severe concussion. Um, so he was on leave from the Navy for a period of time. Uh, he went to practice. <laughs> the Steagles practice with his friend Jack Hinkle, who was on the team and was just shagging some passes and was offered a contract on the spot. And wow. despite the fact that he couldn't uh, he couldn't take part in contact drills for, for quite some time. And remember, the season uh, at that point didn't start until late September, early October. So there was a period of time he went ahead and signed the contract, even though he said, I never thought about pro football in my entire life. I never thought anything of it. The main thing about these early practices was this when Greasy Neal took these players and he uh, he plugged in the T formation as the uh, their offensive uh, set. They were one of only uh, two teams that would be running the T formation on a regular basis up to that point in time. Um, Greasy Neal, the, the way he learned to coach the T formation in 1940, the Chicago Bears beat the, the Washington football team 73 to nothing in the championship game. And it hurts me to say it to this day um, by running the T formation, which the Washington defense hadn't seen. Um, there was of all NFL championship games, as you can imagine, there were newsreels of the game that people could see. And Greasy Neal, who had been at the game, had then seen the newsreel and just happened to be at dinner in New York having a drink with a guy who introduced him to a Fox movie tone filmmaker and Fox movie tone had done the film of the 1940 championship game. And he asked the guy, well, how, how are you able to, to film, to do so well as to guess which plays would be the big plays, not understanding how this worked. You know, my God, you got all the touchdowns and the interception. He said, well, we filmed the whole game, which Neil had no idea so he paid the guy several hundred dollars to purchase the film of that. And that's how he learned to coach the T formation. All right. Now, uh, a month later, August 27th, 1943, the very, very first combined practice of the Steelers and the Eagles. Most of the players were Eagle players. There were six. Well, there were seven at this point. One uh, one of the players eventually gets drafted and has to go around. But there, let's say there's seven Pittsburgh players at this point, and there are about 15 players from the Eagles. So it was, you know, there was an unbalance there. Um, Neil and Kiesling are already at each other. Uh, they had met up about nine days earlier to discuss strategy, and, and Walt Kiesling hated the T formation. He thought it was unnecessarily complex. In fact, he was so old school that he ran the exact same play as the first play of the game in every game he'd coached up to that point. They'd run a fullback dive into the middle of the line. He ran it at every play. And at one point, Art Rooney, when he was uh, owning the Steelers, Keeslin's the head coach, suggested that maybe, maybe just maybe, you should call a different play. And Keesling said, you know what, I'm going to do that. And he called a different play. But he also told one of his linemen to, uh, to go off sides, uh, to false start on that play, so that he could then run his dive play on the second play. And his think the reason was he told his team was that if this is successful, Rooney's going to be down here all the time giving me plays. And uh, we can't have that. Um, one of the other ways that Neil and Kiesling were very, very different was uh, Kiesling was an old school kind of gruff guy, but he was not uh, he wasn't somebody who was profane. Greasy Neil was well known for his profanity, so well known that I had to give you two of my favorite greasy and old profane statements. He wasn't just a guy who threw out cuss words. No, no, no. 
he, he was an artist. Uh, two of his favorite. You could knock a sick whore off a shit pot, which I think is just uh, that leaves very little to the imagination. Yikes. Uh, and then my favorite of all time, they killed Christ and let you live. I think that is uh, that, that that's pretty damn good. I mean, in, in the in the in the scheme of if you're going to curse at somebody. Um, anyway, these guys just hated each other. Uh, they fought constantly more than once. One of them would walk off and take their players uh, and it just was not workable. So finally, they decided for the first time in NFL history that one of them would coach, one coach would coach offense, and one would coach defense. Oh, wow. Up to that point in time, that's not how it worked. You either coached the line or the backs. And that meant if you were the coach of the backs, you coached the offensive backfield and the defensive backfield. You coached the lines. And I think the linebackers were somewhere in the middle, um, as as well they are. Um, that is... So this was a huge change that, again, with the unlimited substitutions, ended up having just massive repercussions throughout. Um, let's talk about now, the players. A little. Now, did offensive and defensive coordinators sort of emerge from this? Yes, they did. They did. It's it, it became and it took a while, you know, understand during the Second World War, obviously, things were instituted just for short periods of time. But they started to see the pluses in doing things a little bit differently. And as the T formation uh, became the, the more popular offense, it was a much more difficult offense to teach. So you couldn't really spend your time, you know, teaching half the time teaching the backs and then half the other time teaching the defensive backs. Um, so, yes, it, it was uh, it really it led to the expansion of coaching staffs and offensive and defensive coaching staffs, which had not happened prior to that. Um, now, as you can imagine, the players had some issues with one another because you had starters from one team that expected to start for the other team. Um, LB Schultz of the starting tackle for the Steelers left, lost out to Vic Sears, who was a great player for the Eagles. Uh, Schultz ended up playing guard. Um, one of the what problems, was his previous position. Uh, he was the tackle, and he had to move to guard. That's just illustrating a couple, because they were both very good players, but you know, there's a limited number of positions. And um, Art Rooney and Harry Thayer, the GM of the Eagles, had made a deal that there was a quota. There had to be a, a number of Pittsburgh Steelers on the field, even there were fewer of them to choose from. So at some point, you could be supplanted by somebody who was an inferior player. Um to give you an idea of what the play, the, some of these players were like, most of them had NFL experience. There were a couple of guys coming out of college, but uh, I want to focus on a guy named Ray Graves, who was the starting center for uh, Philadelphia. He spent three seasons in the NFL, 42 being his, um, his rookie season, 43, and then he came back and played in 46. He had joined the Navy, had uh, Ray Graves, and was in the Navy for about a month, and then they found out that he was deaf in one ear. Um, now, if you can imagine, now, uh, later wars, even Korea, uh, Vietnam, and later wars, people do anything they could to get out of the military. And World War II, guys were lying about it. So Ray Graves held, uh, was able to hide the fact that he was deaf in one ear um, and then was eventually caught and uh, shuttled out. So uh, Ray Graves comes in, deaf, deaf in one ear. He's going to be your starting center uh, and a linebacker. Um, he uh, in 46, I should point, I want to jump ahead to 46. He was actually signed on to be a scout but due to injuries, came in and played a year. So, no, he wasn't a player coach. He was a scout coach. 
And I could find no other evidence of scout coaches in the NFL. But if you're going to scout guys, I mean, scout them from the field, at least. Um, he was supposed to have coached the line at the University of Tennessee in 1943, but they suspended their football program. So that's how Ray Graves ended up a Steagle. Um, he uh, invented the monster defense. He was the first defensive coordinator. We ended up defensive coordinator at Tennessee to have both a strong safety and a safe a free safety on the field at the, uh, at the same time. And through 1960 to 1969, he coached the Mighty Gators of Florida. He was their most successful head coach prior to a kid out of Johnson City, Tennessee, that he recruited by the name of Steve Spurrier. He also recruited Jack Youngblood. He was 70-31-4 and four at the University of Florida over that decade. Uh, Allie Sherman, you know that name, Allie Sherman, former head coach of the New York Giants. As we see, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see Allie Sherman. Perforated eardrum. Apparently, something about the early 20th century, just people's ears were just popping and perforating. I'm not really I think sure. it's because it was uh, a lot of, they used forceps a lot for delivery. Wow. That, no, I think. That's Grabbed what your happened. head by a pair of tongs and ripped you out? Yeah. No, that's what it, that's what they would do. That's why Frank Sinatra had a, a scar. whole scar on his left side that that he would never, you know, they he would insist when he had the power, you know, shoot me from the other side. Shoot me from the other side. <laughs> or I'll shoot you from any side. <laughs> All right, baby. Uh, have Sam take care of you. My favorite Sinatra of, of all time has been filming um, uh, Ocean's Eleven. You know, he only liked to shoot once. Right. So the director shot the scene. I think you know this story. I'm sure you know this story. Shot the scene. The uh, the director said, that was great. Let's do it again. And Snob turned around and said, again, you said action. We acted. You said cut. We're done. Come on, boys. Let's take a steam. <laughs> Love. We could do we could do a whole deep dive on Frank Sinatra and sports, an enormous sports fan, by the way. Ali Sherman um, was a backup quarterback for uh, the Steagles. He ended up in coaching because he was an undersized player at Brooklyn College um, and had been inserted into a game as a single wing quarterback and just gotten destroyed. And Brooklyn then decided that they were going to start using the T formation. And Ali Sherman was a really, really smart guy. He would eventually go on to law school, I believe. Um and uh, the coach just thought this is the guy who'll be able to pick up the offense most quickly. And that's uh, so that's how Ali Sherman really got his start as a coach. Uh, another guy was uh, Steelers and Tony Bova. Tony Bova was blind in one eye. Now, if you're looking at uh, if, if you're trying to pick out who he is on this uh, in this picture, Mark's going to tell you in just a second. He's blind in one eye, had bad vision in the other eye wore an early version of contact lenses. And Dan Rooney, who future owner of the Steelers after his father passed away, had said of Boba, who was a good receiver, I guess he could hear the ball coming because he had horrible eyesight. Now that is Bova, number 85, right? Yep, 85. The running back for, that's the Green Bay Packers. And jumping over the Packer behind him, either that or coming in at, Six foot eleven. That's that's the aforementioned Ray Graves. Yeah, number fifty-two, Ray Graves. Number eighty-five. We've got uh, Tony Bova, and they are playing as the Steagles because those were the Steagles. Looks like those were the Steagles uniforms. I they think. wore the Eagles uniforms. That was another one Alexis Thompson got. And didn't they at times wear uh, the orange socks? They 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 added they some did. accoutrement uh, yeah. to throw a throw a bone to Pittsburgh. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Even though Pittsburgh was seven and four, 
I mean, Pittsburgh actually was the winning team coming yeah. in, but yeah. you know, their le- legacies were both so bad and Philadelphia had more players. So what the heck? And Philadelphia was a bigger city at that point in time. Um, so that, that had something to do with it. Uh, a couple more guys to give you an idea of what the talent was like. Guard Eddie Michaels was so deaf that he had to take off his helmet in the huddle to hear the play. Now this brings up the question, how did he hear the snap? count but that was uh another one of the players they had they also had guys who uh we mentioned you know the the reason that this talent drain had happened was because of the draft they also had some guys who were actually active duty military uh Rocco Canale was in the navy but he had a uh, commander who was a football fan and i'm sure tickets were involved in some sort of payoff follow the money but he he was allowed off weekends that didn't practice but he'd come in on the weekend and get a get a workout in on saturday and then play on sunday and bucko kilroy who's a hall of famer and one of the most famous early 20th century players uh was in the merchant marine so in the he would play during the football season they'd let him off and then he'd go escort con he'd be in those escort convoys going across uh the atlantic um so that's some of the guys that they had involved in the team. It was a, uh, it was a kind of like that new movie that that's out on Apple TV, Greyhound. Yes, Tom Hanks. Yes, absolutely. Uh, lots of overbets coming now. Now I'm I'm nailing my way through this. Okay, so these guys also had full time jobs during in the defense industry. It was one of the things that kept uh, that kept the Office of War Production and stuff on their side. A lot of teams didn't do that. In fact, we're going to get bulletin board material in just a second, game one, about how uh, other teams did not do that. But each one of these guys worked an eight-hour day, five days a week, sometimes six in a defense plant, and then would practice from six to nine that night. They'd get off work and then go and practice that night. Not all teams did that, uh, but they did. And it was one of one of the reasons that they were able to stay on the good side of the war production board, while other teams we're being investigated for, you know, do you have are these players really, uh, should they be 4F? Shouldn't they be working in the defense industry? Every one of the Steagles worked in the defense industry during this time. All right. So now we get to the, the, uh, the 1943 NFL season and the Steagles. Um, they played a couple of preseason games. The, the really the only thing that they showed, and, and, and they did show this relatively early, was that they were pretty solid team up front on both sides of the football. And that was not, in the early part of the 20th century, that was not as big a deal as it was starting to become with teams using either fully the T formation or more T formation, which allowed for drop back passing, which now made your offensive line and your defensive lines more important. So expectations were pretty much in the cellar. So they opened their season on October 2nd, 1943, in Shibe Park in Philadelphia, in front of 11,000 screaming fans. To give you an idea of what that, uh, what that was about, earlier that day there had been a Penn-Yale football game in the same stadium that drew 30,000 fans. So one-third, which you know is kind of where they sat. Um, as I mentioned, there was bulletin board material for this. The GM of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who were the worst team in the NFL, by the way, said of the Steagles, "There aren't any part-time players on this team. They make us look like a that make us look like a Humpty Dumpty outfit." First of all, a Humpty Dumpty reference. Good lord, I remember the 19th century. Jesus, and saying an outfit too. That's so yes. Dude. That was Dennis Shea, um, and. Voila, the Steagles shut out 
the Brooklyn Dodgers in their first game, 17 to nothing. And it's actually a pretty decent national story at this point in time because everybody expected them to be a uh, just a just a doormat for everybody. Sure, else. But sure. they proved they were good up front and they would prove throughout the season that they had a pretty good defense for most of the time. All right. Their bigger struggle would come week two. Well, in theory, their biggest struggle would come week two, where they would take on Steve Owen's New York Giants. Now, Steve Owen, their head coach, was legendary, and he was great friends with uh, with Greasy Neal. Philadelphia had never beaten the New York Giants. They ne- Steve Owen had never lost to Greasy Neal at that point in time. And, and sadly, in that game, the Steagles fumbled 10 times, which, by the way, is still a record. It's been tied since by the 67 Detroit Lions, the 69 Kansas City Chiefs who went on to win a championship. Wow. And just because it's fun, the 78 San Francisco 49 <laughs> who had 10 fumbles against Detroit. Now these are lost fumbles? These are uh they lost I believe 6 of the 10 fumbles, but they fumbled 10 times. Yeah. Um 78 49ers were 2 and 14, but <laughs> yes, that's the uh Jim Plunkett quarterback uh 78 or that DeBerg. Been shuttled off by that point, but yeah, it's probably DeBerg. Okay, fair enough. Um, they spotted New York 14 points, but then they scored 28 unanswered and really, really surprised everybody with a 28 to 14 victory. Uh, I bring uh, th- this game is more important because it it really brought a bonding moment together for the team. All of these guys were living together in uh, in a hotel in Philadelphia. That was Greasy Neal's rule um, in trying to get them to to bond in some way. Um, they bonded really uh, on the field due to Ali Sherman, who came in late in mop-up duty in that game when they were up 21 to 14. Um, he was told to go in and run out the clock. Um, when he when he got into the huddle, Ted Doyle, the tackle, said, uh, "I can I can put my man on his back every single time. Just snap the ball, run left over me, and we'll score." And he did. And even though Greasy Neal yelled and screamed because you didn't do what I said. The team rallied around Allie Sherman and uh, Ted Doyle for having the guts to basically say, no, 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 we we can dominate. And with that touchdown, they sealed the victory, gave uh, Neal's first victory over uh, over his good friend Steve Owen, who, by the way, recommended Greasy Neal for the Philadelphia job to Alexis Thompson. So now the team is 2-0, and and it's kind of a pretty, pretty fun story. Sure, uh, sure. Players are starting to get along. Better. Nothing like winning. Nothing like winning. Yeah. Greasy Neal and Walt Keesling, not so much. Um, In fact, during this period of time, they they had practices where, once again, somebody would pull the team off the field. Um, At some point during this this week in between, Greasy Neal was sick in bed. And Walt Keesling came in to see how he was doing and basically just sat in a chair and was reading the newspaper. And Greasy said, I'm laying here dying and you're reading the goddamn newspaper. And Walt Keesling said, if you're going to die, you're going to die. There's nothing I can do about it. So that's kind of where their relationship was sitting up until that point in time. Um, before we move on to game three, I should tell you at this point in time, the NFL is realizing they made a really good choice staying um, uh open for the for the war because their average attendance was uh one third greater than it had been prior to wow this season okay. they were up 33 percent um and much of it is what franklin roosevelt had said that people are going to be working harder they're going to want to find things to do 
Um, anyway, so they move into their they're two and zero. Everybody's feeling great. They move into their third game. It is uh, their first uh, road trip. They have to go to Chicago. That's a fifteen hour train ride. Yikes! In nineteen forty three to Chicago. Holy cow. Man. Yep. From Philly. Yep. Um, the Bears hadn't lost uh, a game since before a regular season game since before Pearl Harbor. Uh, wow. Yes, there were only two teams using the T formation at this point in time, and the Bears were another one of them under the great Sid Luckman, who we bring up because he's the last viable quarterback the Chicago Bears have had. Uh, Jimmy McMahon won a championship, but he was no Sid Luckman. Uh, it was. Uh, it looked like it was going to be a, a huge uh, contest defensively. It didn't turn out that way. The Steagles defense was number one overall, number one against the run. The Bears defense was number one versus the run. Uh, the Steagles opened with a 62-yard two-play drive, um, six, uh, uh, culminating. It was a two-play drive, a two-yard run, and a 60-yard touchdown pass. Apologies. And then, and this is all for Mark, on the ensuing kickoff, Chicago Bear Dante Mangiani. Hmm. No, wasn't Bazzini. It was Mangiani. Had a 96-yard kickoff return, made the game seven to seven, and Chicago was on its way to 48 unanswered points. The game ended up 48 to 21. Disappointing, but they were well. They faced a juggernaut and their and, first road contest. And clearly, the T formation was people still uh, teams still struggled to defend it. Yep, absolutely. Which, which is is there a way that in three minutes you can explain? Why it was so complicated for defensive defenses to figure out I can, team formation. But you know what? I'm going to need you to do one thing before I do that. And that is yes. that I realized that I did not bring my cord to plug in my computer and I'm down to 14 percent. Um, so if you can take the ensuing 90 seconds to talk about anything that you would like to talk about, I'm going to plug my computer in. I will be just I'll be back in a moment. All right. Well, what indicates to me, Jeff, with the increase in in attendance for the NFL, which was probably we've talked about this on previous deep dives, maybe fifth in popularity in the United States at that point behind boxing, behind baseball, behind horse racing and the like and probably college football. Um, I think it's the same thing that we're going to experience here. It's that people want to feel like things are normal. People want to feel as if. You know, life has gone on. People and you are, combine that with what Ta- uh, John had mentioned about what FDR said, and people were, were, were busting their butts to try and not only feed their family, but produce enough tanks and so forth they, for the war effort. They look for, in situations like we're in now and back then, they look for something that's an escape from reality for just an hour or two on a Sunday, whatever it takes. Yeah. yeah. Mo- movies were more popular during that sure. period of time. Most things, uh, attendance went up, but the NFL really, really did well during the Second World War. Uh, very quickly to explain the T formation, which is basically what you see today, though it was uh, it was a little different when instituted. It was the quarterback behind center uh, and three backs directly behind them. That would obviously change to one or two backs. Um, But prior to that, the ball had been snapped a la the uh, Wildcat to the halfback. The halfback was the most important player in the National Football League. The quarterback, halfback, and fullback just really um, meant where they were in the formation. Um, I would have to show you a diagram to explain it to you, but one of them was a quarterback, and the other would be half, and then full would actually be the the third player in a row behind the center. Um, 
what the T formation did was it opened the game up to downfield passing and a lot of more creative faking. Frankly, the, the bottom line is there was there was more movement in the backfield because of the way the players were set up. Uh, the ball was now always in the quarterback's hands and the decision could be made. Then it was run pass option that we talked about with sure. um, with Derek Abbott. And that hadn't been seen before. Generally, the ball would be hiked to a halfback. And you may have some misdirection where he would hand off to somebody on a reverse. But for the most part, it was a relatively straight ahead thing. I know this because at nine years old, I was a quarterback of a single wing football team and I called all my own plays. And uh, basically you just picked whatever, you know, did you think that it was a power play up the middle? So you hike it to whoever your, your power back is. You snap the ball to your halfback if it were something around the end. And then again, downfield passing was uh, the exception, not the rule. There were only a couple of teams that had uh, players who were good passers. I mentioned Sid Luckman, one of the most accurate right. passers of all time. Sammy Baugh, who we're going to meet in a little bit for, for Washington as well. But that's why the T formation was uh, was the most uh, innovative thing to come into the National Football sure. League. And, on, a, uh, on a few levels. Changed everything. All right. We're going to bounce back, right? We're 2-1. and one. We're yeah. going to bounce back. We've sure. got Steve Owens, New York Giants. We've already beaten them, and we have to go to the polo grounds. And to give you an idea now what the Eagles, the Steagles, excuse me, have become, 42,681 people show up at the polo grounds. Fun. It is an opening home game record for the Giants. Wow. Um, because this, this team had become, you know, something that you could you, you wanted to get a look at. And the game did not live up to the hype. Um, New York is up 42 to nothing by the end of the third quarter. They blocked two punts returned for touchdowns. By the way, look into the 1940s. There's a blocked punt like every fifth punt. It's it's insane how many blocked punts for touchdowns that you found at that time. It's, it's just ridiculous. I, I went through the entire 1943 season and I looked at everybody's box score. And honestly... If I'm not, I'm no, honestly, every other game, there was a blocked punt that was either turned into a touchdown or they got the ball on like the two. Just go for it on fourth down. No special teams coaches. You you probably should have. All right. So game five, you're going to write the ship. The Chicago Cardinals. You lost two in a row. Chicago Cardinals are probably the team you're going to want to see. Uh, and this will be the first game at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Ooh, fun. Yeah, the great Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. To give you an idea of the the level of um, ineptitude that the Chicago Cardinals brought to the game, um, in the week before the game, uh, Chicago and Clint Wager suffered a fractured skull when he was shagging punts. And one of his teammates yelled at him, and he took his eye off the ball, and the ball hit him in the head, fractured his skull. Golly, Moses. That would have made the highlight film for the 43 Chicago Cardinals, though. Uh, They were pretty bad. Um, Slow start. Obviously, the Steagles are going to win this game. Yeah, slow start. They fumbled the ball on their own 17. But then two plays later, an interception return, 86-yard touchdown off the interception return. It was 21 to 13 at the half. They hold the Cardinals scoreless in the second half. It's 34 to 13. They're three and one. Three and three and two. Three and two. Yeah. Three and two. I was assured there'd be no math. Um, And I'm already at uh, 
50 minutes. So, all right, I'm, I'm, we're gonna, we're pushing through because we're at game six of 10. Game six of 10. They're taking on the defending champion, Washington Redskins. It should be mentioned that Roy Zimmerman, the quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, it was a good T formation quarterback along with Ali Sherman, had been traded to the Eagles from Washington. He hated George Preston Marshall. There have been a lot of negative things said about him in Washington. Um, he knew when he got to uh, Washington it'd be a bad situation because he was behind um, Sammy Ball. He wasn't going to get to play. Um, so he was uh, motivated for this. And the game would be played in Shide Park in Philadelphia in front of 28,000. Remember, the first game, only 11. Now there's almost 30. Right. So, some of it has to do with the man that you're seeing if you're watching. That's the great Sammy Ball, the Hall of Famer, who still holds the NFL record for uh, average as a punter and set all the NFL records as a passer. Um, Ball had come into the, the league in 1937 and had, had changed it a, a great deal. Um, as mentioned, they were the defending National Football League champions. Um, in the first half, Sammy Ball threw two touchdown passes. Let me jump back really quickly and say that Walt Kiesling was very smart, and he realized that to play against Sammy Ball, the only way you could uh, you could stop him, and stop him might be the wrong, slow him down, was to put pressure on him. And that was not the way things were necessarily done, but that's the way the Steagles were going to uh, take care of business. Ball threw two touchdown passes in the first uh, in the first half. Uh, sadly for him, only one of those was to the Washington uh, football team. The other was to the Eagles. Um, Washington blocked a punt in the fourth to score a touchdown. Because that's what you do. Because that happened in every other game. Yep. And it Gotta may even be more than that. Um, and then there was a disputed Ernie Steele touchdown at the end. To this day, people say he didn't get in. Had there been a replay back then, uh, maybe we would have found out. But we didn't. Most importantly, um, the Steagles walk away with a tie against the ah. defending NFL champions. So at this point. Three, yeah, two, and one. Three, yep. two, and one. At this point, uh, Washington's 4-0-1, oh, the Steagles are 3-2-1, and one, the Giants are 2-2-1, two, two, and one, and the Dodgers are 1-6. and six. Um, And this Steagles story, now essentially halfway through the season, more than halfway through for them, teams played, by the way, a little bit of an unbalanced schedule. Some would finish the, the season a couple of weeks ahead of the other. Uh, there were transportation issues also during the Second World War that prevented uh, using the railroads um for non-military reasons, uh, one of the reasons it was a long trip to Chicago is there weren't direct trains as much anymore. Anyway, uh, so just to give you that idea, the teams at this point in time, Steagles had played six, Washington had played five, Dodgers had played seven. Uh, and in their seventh game, after this rousing tie, moral victory tie over the Washington Redskins, they have uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Oh, come on. We're the worst team in football. They'll roll over the, the Dodgers. That's the expectation. Absolutely. Except the quarterback, Roy Zimmerman, who mentioned before, was awfully beat up after uh, the Washington game. He had a gash in his leg. Football was really, really nasty. Then. Plus, he went to San Jose State. West Coast guy. Probably soft. Don't you think, Mark? Don't you think that's probably Northern, Northern California, West Coast? Sure, guy? sure. Probably. You know, that's. They, they, they're the ones that probably invented helmets and face masks. Yeah, probably. And protective equipment because... Uh, uh, uh. Probably. Um, uh, because of that, uh, Earl Neal made maybe the worst decision ever made by a coach at any point in time in any sport for any reason. Really? Worse than what Lehman Bennett would have done? Yeah, this is Lehman Bennett-like, Mark. He decided that... 
because Zimmerman was a better passer than Ali Sherman, that he mm. would play them both, and he would just play Zimmerman when it was going to be a pass play. <laughs> now, there is okay. a, there's a structural problem with this sort of decision-making, and that is that you have to assume that the people on the other side are utter morons. It's sort of like if you watch the video of the ice bowl, um, who's the sprinter, the, the Dallas Bob Cowboys, Bob Hayes in the ice bowl, Green Bay picked up on this because it was so horrible, would put his hands in his pants to keep his hands warm and his thighs. He would only pull his hands out when it was going to be a pass play. And he did it throughout the entire game. Well, Greasy Neal did him one better. He's just like, hey, trotting in my passer now. Try to defense this. Um, 55 yard pass, yards passing later. Brooklyn Dodgers defeat the Steagles by a score of 13 to 7. That's an upset. Yeah, big upset that, and would that, have ramifications. Yeah, that that could uh that could be the key, the key game, the key game of the season to determine could playoff position or could not. Be, could be to quote our good friend Tim Williams, the beginning of the end. All right, uh, so for their eighth game, uh, they're going to take on the Detroit Lions. Now, this is the antithesis of the game against uh, Brooklyn, 13-7. to The game wasn't that entertaining, frankly. even wasn't as entertaining as it sounds at 13-7. to The Detroit Lions had a quarterback by the name of Frank Sinkowitz, um, quarterback halfback, because, again, it wasn't really the same thing back then. Uh, I bring Sinkowitz up simply because, to give you an idea of what recruiting football players was back in the 1940s. Um, he was a uh, he was a kid who played in Western Pennsylvania. A coach from Georgia had been scouting a player in um, either uh, Eastern Ohio or Western Pennsylvania who was the number one recruited quarterback slash halfback in the country. By the time the coach got there, the kid had already decided to sign with Ohio State. So this coach is driving back. He's in Western Pennsylvania. He stops to get gas. And the attendant who fills up his car, think about that for a minute, kids. There's an attendant that fills up his car. He's in a conversation with the guy, sees his license plate. What are you doing? Oh, I'm recruiting. I, w- I was recruiting the number one quarterback uh, prospect in the country, but he signed with Ohio State. And the guy goes, oh, man, he, he's not the number one prospect. Kid plays down the road is. So the guy went to see Frank Sinkowitz. He ends up signing with Georgia and wins the Heisman Trophy in 1942. So, you know, I'll take luck over talent any day of the any day of the week uh so uh the detroit lions come into forbes field which by the way uh, now seats twenty three thousand for this game they're up about another ten thousand from the first game because even with the loss to the dodgers still a pretty fun story and they're still in the mix yeah for the yeah, eastern division three three and one this is the game of the year and i'm not going to spend a lot of time on it um the Detroit touchdowns were in a 98-yard kickoff return, a two-yard run, an 88-yard pass and lateral, the old hook and ladder, uh, a 71-yard pass play, and a one-yard run. The lead changed hands four times, and it all came down to a blocked extra point in the second quarter. And our heroes, the Steagles, end up beating Frank Sinkowitz, the 42 Heisman Trophy winner, and the Detroit Lions by a score of 35-24. to 24. Big big win, four three and one now. Yep, beating the Heisman Trophy winners. That was back in the day when Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks would have success in the National Football League. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Those days are gone. Um, all right, 
So we move on to game nine, and this is where we stand right now. If this game nine is against Washington at Griffith Stadium in D.C. If a place you never knew where I, it was. I'm still not sure where it is. Well, Jeff it's gone now, right? I'm near sure. the, right. Certain where it was. Jeff thinks near the Navy Yard. I've been confused by it my whole life, despite being a native. Uh, I'm going to get to the Bob deep dive. Where was Griffith Stadium will be my next one. So if Washington wins the game, they uh, seal up the Eastern Division Championship. And basically, that gives them three weeks off till the championship game. Because it doesn't matter what they do from that point forward. They can rest, guys. Um, Washington, Washington, due to a scheduling, because scheduling was difficult, was going to play the Giants twice. Those were their last two games were going to uh-huh. be against the Giants. Uh, uh, Philadelphia Pittsburgh had to, uh, only uh, had only one more game. Now, if they were to win and the Giants were to beat Washington twice, it would be a tie, and they would have to play a playoff. Um, this is Roy Zimmerman's first game back in Washington after having tied the uh, Skins. He was the guy who was traded. He hated George Preston Marshall. Uh, the Steagles were fourteen point underdogs in the game. Um, Griffith Stadium had 35,000 people in the stands for this game. It was scoreless until the next to last play, the penultimate play of the second quarter. Bob Thurman on a six-yard touchdown run, which was, I only bring it up because it was the first rushing touchdown given up by the Washington football team that season. My gosh. Yep. They played a scoreless second quarter. Um In the third, a 13-play, 62-yard drive. Thurman, his second touchdown on a five-yard run. After that, there's a huge fight. Ray Graves tackles one of the Washington ends, Bob Masterson. Um, Some of the Skins players take uh, umbrage to this, and there ends up being a a fight in which two of the Skins and one of the Steagles is thrown out of the game, and it is not a fair trade at all. It was one of the Steagles running backs. They had a whole bunch of them. Didn't make much difference, but it was two of the starting linemen for Washington. And uh, that was going to be a bit of a problem. Hey, you know what happened in the third quarter, Mark? What happens in every game in the 1943 season? Blocked punt. Blocked punt leads to a skins touchdown in the third. Um, uh, a ball interception then leads to a Steagles touchdown with a miss. PAT, another blocked punt. Sure, sure, because there wasn't one the day before. So you've got to, you know, you've got to keep the averages up. Well, there hadn't been one for a quarter. There hadn't been a blocked punt for a quarter. So clearly you had to have one. They would Um, do. uh, After that interception was the first time ever Sammy Ball had been booed at Griffith Stadium by the home crowd. Yep, got booed. Um, How how soon they forget. They were the the reigning NFL champions, for crying out loud. They were. Skins picked up a late touchdown uh, to make it 27-14, but that ended up being the uh, the final, uh, the huge upset for the 14-point dogs. It was the first Washington loss in over a year, um, and it it very easily could have led to one more Steagles-Washington game for the Eastern Conference Championship. So now we come down to the 10th and final game for the right. Steagles. Steagles against- are 5-3-1 and one at this point. Yes, they are. I-, I still want to call out Washington fans. This is even more egregious. They hadn't lost a game. In a year. In, a, in over a year, and they're yeah. booing their quarterback. Right. 
Yeah. The, wow. Defending national, defending world champions. And yeah, that they, doesn't tell you about human nature and certainly <laughs> human nature combined with sports fandom. I don't know what does. All right. So remember one more game for the Steagles, two games for Washington. If Washington loses both games and they're both to the New York Giants and the Steagles beat the Green Bay Packers, then they will be tied and they will play for the division. Washington does lose the game that week on the 5th of December, uh, 14 to 10 to the New York Giants. Um, Green Bay was a really good football team. We haven't talked about the Western Conference football team. They had Don Hudson, who to this day is considered one of the greatest receivers in the history of the National Football League. And he was also their uh, their field goal kicker. There's a good shot of Hudson. Um, back and forth and back and forth. Teams are trading touchdowns in the fourth quarter of this game. Green Bay uh, scores first. Then the Steagles, 7-7. Green Bay then scores 14-7. Steagles score 14-14. The third quarter is where it all comes apart. Um, Steagles can't score. Don Hudson kicks a field goal in the third. Uh, There's a touchdown following a – no, it's an interception. Not a block punt. It was not a block punt. Um, The fourth quarter becomes the first quarter all over again, but instead of trading touchdowns – Hudson from Green Bay catches a touchdown pass. Uh, Bova for the Steagles catches a touchdown pass. Steele for the Steagles scores a touchdown. Um, Hudson from Green Bay picks up the last touchdown. They can't stop the passing offense of the Green Bay Packers the way they did of the Washington football team. And it ends up 38-28 Green Bay. The Steagles are officially out of playoff contention, which really sucks when you realize that the next week, the Washington Redskins lose to the New York Giants for the second week in a row. And had they beaten Green Bay, they'd have played Washington um, for the division. As it was, Washington had to play New York a third time in a row for the division. And uh, Skins won that one 28 to nothing. They shut out the Giants. They lose the championship 41 to 21 to the Chicago Bears, and that is the end of the Steagles' one and only season. They kept their fans in it until the last week of the season. In fact, after they were a week after they were were done, they could have been still in the mix. Um, they they increased the attendance at both Shy Park and Forbes Field by over the thirty three percent that uh, that they'd gotten uh, before this happened. And that was the end of that experiment. Now, interestingly enough, in 1944, um, the Eagles had enough players. They had some guys who had come back from the military. They had some people that had enough players. They didn't want to um, merge with another team again. Pittsburgh still had to. So they merged with the Chicago Cardinals. Um, Walt Kiesling was the co-coach of that team as well. And it didn't didn't end well. They went 0-10 in that season. And uh, that was the end of the merged teams. Now, following this season, um, a number of the players ended up uh, quitting and going off onto uh, defense jobs. Uh, Greasy Neal stayed as the head coach of the Eagles until 1950. Walt Kiesling, he jumped around quite a bit, a cu- couple different coaching jobs, but he, his final uh, stint was with the Steelers from 54 to 58 as their head coach. Interestingly enough, Greasy Neal is a name I think more people know. Um, and he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1969. But Walt Keesling was actually inducted in in 1966. Um, 
posthumously he'd passed away at that point in time. So Keesling, not as well known of a guy, but uh, very innovative on defense. And both he and Greasy Neal set the template for what an offensive and a defensive coordinator should be. And that is the story of the 1943 Phil Pitt Steagles. All right. Hour and five. Ten. Hour and ten. Hey, let me do a shallow dive on the uh, Griffiths uh, Stadium. It's on the Maryland side. It's where Howard University Hospital is now. So Florida NW. Okay. All right. Well, that makes that makes more. Why did nobody ever say that before when they were trying to point it out? But but there you go, Mark, the teams that saved the NFL in World War in, in World War Two, because there is a very good chance that if they had not agreed on this merger, yeah. that the league would would have suspended through the duration. There were three other professional. There were four other professional football leagues in the United States at that point in time. Um, three of them stopped play and never came yeah. back. There was a Pacific Coast League out, out in California and I think one team in Arizona that did continue to play. But uh, the NFL, as we know it, might have been very, very different if it existed at all. I think we would have had more pro football, but it would not have been the history that we see now. Well, and it's so interesting uh, to talk about the characters and personalities that made up the Steagles, uh, the two coaches. Let's just start there. And uh, they're both Hall of Famers. That's noteworthy. And uh, uh the Pittsburgh Steeler head coach, Walter Walt Keesling. Keesling, you said 58, 54 to 58. He went back to coach the uh, Steelers. I think during that time, John, if I'm not mistaken, at one point they had Bobby Lane. At one point they had Len Dawson. Yes, I believe. Yeah, because I think Len Dawson came into Got the league in like, in, in like in 58, may have been his rookie year. Yeah, 57, maybe 58. 57, 58, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, very interesting. But yeah, and the fact that you have, you know, Ali Sherman, you have the – you, you have all of that history of the NFL where really that early part of the 40s that was dominated by the Bears and, and by the, you know, Washington football team. Yeah, they, they yeah, they uh, and again, I think that comes into play when you look at everybody. The, the only teams that were really trying to stop this from happening were the yeah. two most successful teams, which makes sense in some way. They don't want to upset the apple cart. But frankly, once the father draft came into play. And that was instituted midsummer of 43. And I think they actually pushed back inductions and stuff. Um, that was really going to negatively affect Washington and Chicago. Well, I like that a lot. That was very interesting. It was a uh, topic that I have never, I've never known about, to tell you the truth, before you brought that up. And so that the '40s NFL is very murky for me. It is, and, and, uh, and I think, but I think you know, it leads. It, it, if you want to tie it into things that, that we're talking about today, and we all work, uh, well, some of us worked. Uh, in entertainment and entertainment companies, theaters and everything are having to be incredibly creative about how they make a dollar, yeah. keep themselves viable. And yeah. the NFL was presented with that in during World War Two. And I had no idea about I'd, I'd heard about the Steagles. In fact, you can go on Amazon and buy a Steagles T-shirt right now. Um, I'd heard about that, but I had no You're all idea about the merchandise, Johnny. I, I really am. We need to merchandise the show. Yes. Um, uh, I had no idea about the unlimited substitutions. Um, I was not aware that when you were a back coach of the backs, you coached backs from both sides of the football. I mean, yeah. it's really inconceivable in today's game to understand how different it was back then. And then I didn't really touch enough on the fact that these guys were working all day long in defense plants and then practicing for three hours at night, just like, you know, like we would have the energy to go have a pickup game of basketball at that point in time. They're practicing uh, for a, uh, 
a vicious game of football because the game in the 40s was absolutely vicious. And, and there was uh, no protection either. They barely very little. protected themselves. It, it's like now. It's the opportunity to innovate, the opportunity to reinvent. And that's what we're experiencing right now. And hopefully, you know, some of us can do that. Right. Uh, and regardless of individuals who may or may not be able to do that, there are going to be, to your point, companies, theaters, uh, there's going to be a new normal created, just yeah. like there was a new normal created for the NFL at the time. You know, you, you start you start breaking up offenses and defenses. You the, the forward pass starts. You know, Sixty minute make, players started going away. There, there it is. That, now you know, you're expanding the roster post war when there was more money available. Now you're expanding the roster. Substitutions. And yep, a big one. League that was expansion. Innovative as well. You you know you could have unlimited substitutions and we take all of that kind of stuff for granted these days. But at one point in time, you know, things had to change. Things had to evolve. And it usually takes these huge catastrophic events to do it. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't plan for things well, but man, we step up when crap happens. We do, we do, <laughs> we do. Yeah. That's the, that's the story. Yeah. That again, story. I want to give approbation to uh, Lego's book, um, Last Team Standing, How the Steelers and the Eagles Saved Pro Football During World War II. There's so much more information in there. I wish I could have spent more time. I went over the time I wanted to spend on these players and, uh, and, and, and um, didn't get into the fact that they were, uh, you know, a lot of people were questioning, how could you be playing professional football and you can't be in the military? But there were any number of things. Uh, some people standing up and say there was a U.S. House of Representative member who was an NFL referee on the weekends. And I believe he may be one of the guys who said, look, uh, you know, being deaf in one ear when your job is to catch a football or to block somebody is one thing. But being deaf in one ear when you're in a foxhole and there are troops on the march or planes coming in, things. It's it's a different you, you need a different skill set. So um, Frankie Sinkowitz, by the way. Um, who I mentioned, the 42 Heisman Trophy winner, was in the military and then was uh, shuttled out of the military because he had flat feet. Yeah. And yeah. It, he couldn't deal with all the marching. Um, also didn't get into things like the fact that they couldn't get new cleats because leather and rubber and plastic were at a, a minimum. They they didn't have people doing their laundry, so they were taking their own laundry home and doing it. Um, it was just a different a different time, and the shared sacrifices are. I yep. think there are lessons for all of us in yep. in being um, uh, fluid with what we do and what we need to do, uh, being able to handle the curveballs in life, and then also shared sacrifice is. I think one of the more American things that I think we've lost a little bit of. Well, I think it all comes down to you know being united or divided. If you have a common enemy, yeah, it's, it's true. It's easier. And so everyone can be on the same team. If there's no common enemy, then then it naturally breaks up into two teams that fight each other. And yep. so it's uh, it, 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 as long as we have, I, I will say this, term limits, this whole trope I used to believe, well, we got elections. That's what term limits are. That's, right. that's wrong. That's That just doesn't apply. In yeah, I'm coming over politics. to that side, too. I'm coming over to that side. As and, well. and that takes care of campaign finance reform as well, because, you know, you only ha you have a limited amount of time to, to serve. And now and now uh, lobbying and everything else gets out because they don't spend all of their time fundraising. Hmm. 
So uh, that's the thing, and 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 therefore there can be some bipartisan work. There can be some pull, there can be some issues that both sides can tackle. Right. Because it doesn't matter as much who gets the credit, John. That's the thing. Well, we can we can get anything done in this country if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. I will say though, you you get into the book and you read uh, there's there's a lot of those going on in 1943 still too with parties. in the middle of a war, huh? In yeah. the middle of a war. I mean, it's just part of the you know it's why George Washington didn't want a two party system because he felt partisan. Uh, I want to talk about partisan fighting. Pick up the pen, start writing. It's the Hamilton moment, Jeff. If you could just do the scroll, I had to get one in. All right. So before we go, let's talk about uh, tomorrow night, the NFL, thanks to the Steagles. I think we give them full, full uh, approbation for this. Uh, we have our opening game of the NFL season and a good one. Texans, Chiefs, uh, the defending NFL champions, the team that we either pick to win the Super Bowl or bury every year, and then every year goes 10-6 and six and loses in the first round of the playoffs, the Houston Texans. How do you see this game, Mark? Who do you like? It, it's at Arrowhead, so I think Kansas City wins this game. I think uh, nine-point favorites, nine favorites and 54-and-a-half is the over-under. I think they cover. I think they cover. I would, get, I would give uh, Houston the points. Mm. Uh, and I'd give, I'd give them the points. I'd give away nine points. They're okay. going to cover that, but number. the over-under always gets me nervous. Yeah, it's 54 it, and a half. To me, that's more of a crapshoot. But yeah. I think it's – I'll be very surprised, let's put it that way, if Kansas City doesn't cover and beat Houston. Opening day, Arrowhead Stadium. Pat, you know, they, they, they've, they've signed – you know, they've gotten Mahomes. They've gotten Kelsey all taken care of. they got yeah. Chris Jones all taken care of. And they tend to start the seasons fast, Kansas City. Even, yeah. you know, with Andy Reid especially, they start fast. They're a little dip in, in the midseason, and then they, well, last year certainly they finished fast. Yeah. So that's what I anticipate. How about you? Um, I, uh, I'm just going to check with Jeff before I come in. Jeff, you, you were nodding your head there. You agree? I think that the uh, Chiefs are going to win. I do not think they're going to cover that spread, though. I think it'll be closer yeah, than that. I do, I do think that they will be over. 54.5 that's a yeah I, i'm i am i'm like mark with the over under i'm generally wrong about that um i think the chiefs win the game i think simply you know i wanted to say because week one you know you have those inexplicable upsets and you know, texans are good football team not great football team like the chiefs but you can see that but i think the fact we talked about this with Derek abbott and patrick mahomes the fact that he can work off script as well as he can in a year where teams had less time to work on the script and um, I, I think that's going to benefit him. Um, I the God, nine is such a big number. And they don't have NFL DeAndre. They don't have DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. There's a potential it, they won't have Brandon Cooks as well, which was going to be something that could have made up for that a little bit. But uh, a little bit. They, they still well. They got Kenny Stills and Randall Cobb. If Randall I'm not mistaken, Cobb. So and the, their combined ages, John. 166. So day, day before know. yesterday, they both I think had a Kansas City rolls. Well, yeah. well, yeah, we'll have to see. I think I don't think the run game is going to be that uh, that much of a factor at the end of the day. But I do think the guy, the the team that can run better, will be the team that wins, and that's the only reason why I think that it's going to be closer than uh, than nine points. Well, I, I mean, I think enough, if, yeah. if, if you're going to defense Patrick Mahomes, the best way to do it is not have the football in his hands. So if you, if if the inexplicably and, the Chiefs can start have sustaining drives, but um, I tell you what, I I'll I'll take the Chiefs, um, but I but I'm I'm not giving nine. I won't give nine. I'll give I'll give seven and take the Chiefs. Fifty four and a half. 
if if the rookie if the rookie is is uh what everybody seems to think he's going to be then i think that he will uh push them over that nine but i just I, I feel like david johnson may have a reawakening so houston will be the better running team it's it's tough for me to take kansas city he's mark's right though they are an arrowhead and uh i just feel like that's such like story wise if houston beats kansas city week one would be so but much better for stories arrowhead 20 percent filled though so let's let's all remember that it's only 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 20 percent filled i think i'll still stick with mine the biggest reason i think is because mahomes can play off schedule and i think more teams are going to be off schedule than on schedule the first couple of weeks of the season uh with a lack of uh preseason so that's how i see it joe joe's asking about uab in miami but first sadly, of all why is miami playing uab i i don't i don't why, why aren't they just keeping aren't they aren't they why don't you know what just stick I, they, stick, they were able to add it they were able, the maybe, maybe that was already that may have already been on their schedule no, they I'm may sure. have already had that game on their schedule and I, I why understand. does this upset you so much why would this upset you because it's like UAB, all the things will upset you really come on Hey, now, listen. granted, a lot of the teams in the ACC are about the same level of, of UAB. So God, who's kidding such who? An elitist. The the real the reality of it too is that's kind of a good opening season game because that's sort of when those things happen. UAB has yeah. a better chance of beating Miami week one than they do week seven. That's always the case. All right, my dogs are going crazy. That's a good time. That's not a euphemism. That is a good time to get out of here. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the deep dive into this Eagles Mark Friday. Very very special show. Very special show. We've got Sean Gavin, who runs a receiver school. We talked to Derek Abbott on Monday. He does quarterback school. Sean Gavin does receiver school uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube. And, you know, 40-something followers. We're going to break down what he does on that site, what kind of content is on that site, how he created that business from the dust. And then we're also going to talk to Kendall Gammon formerly of the Kansas City Chiefs, who is a commentator for the Chiefs now, has his own show out there. We're going to talk to him about, well, what happens tomorrow night, John, Let's and what's see. going to happen week one in the National Football League. Should be a lot of fun. Well, uh, uh, Lenny Rowe pointing out, Kansas City in a blowout is a sexy pick for everybody. So week That's one, folks, I, went with. I don't bet on sports, and I certainly wouldn't bet week one of any sport. But uh, So that's it for us. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back with you on Friday for Mark Ferreira. Jeff Taylor, I'm John Pelkey. This has been After Further Review. We'll see you Friday, everybody. Bye-bye.